As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The producers of this podcast recognize the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. I'm what I call a shit magnet. Shit, naturally, I attract terrible things happen to me. I, I probably purposely put myself in harm's way or shit's way, but it happens and I, somehow I've survived it all. It might be confronting to people who are from that lifestyle, but people who are in clubs, read they go, yeah, that, that's pretty much what, what it is, you know, now it happens. You take us all far more seriously than we take ourselves. 
This chat you're about to hear was an absolute ride, pun intended. Our guest is Boris Mihailovic, a former Outlaw Motorcycle Club member, journalist, editor and author of three memoirs, detailing his wild times on two wheels and everything that comes with that lifestyle. Boris is a candid man and we cover a lot of ground here, but something I think you'll find fascinating is Boris's first-hand account of the hectic times in the early 1980s, where bikies came up against police at the hallowed ground of Mount Panorama in Bathurst during the Australian Motorcycle Grand Prix. As I said to Boris, I'm a suburban mum whose motorcycle knowledge is confined to Sons of Anarchy and Hunter S. Thompson's Hells Angels, so forgive any silly questions. As you'll discover, there's no silly questions in Boris's view, but he'll give you honest, provocative answers. Enjoy this ride with Boris Mihailovic. So Boris, you have some pretty out there stories and, you know, there's some pretty fresh language in the books. I don't mind to swear every now and then, to be honest. Well, it was pretty realistic. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm sort of cursed with not an eidetic memory, but I, I tend to remember things no matter how out of, out of it I was or how drunk I was, I tend to have total recall. But that's how that's how people speak. That's, you know, certainly the people I hung out with, that's how we all talked. Hey, I've got a teenager and I can tell you, oh, you there's like. some full I've on got language a 25-year-old. <laughs> Now, I first heard of you from a friend of mine. Our daughters are friends. We're at the footy club chatting while we were watching the girls. And she's like, you should get this guy I know on your podcast. And she told me about you. And I thought, yeah, why not? So what is it about you that is so fascinating, Boris? I want to hear it from you before I- I don't know. You rang me. (laughs) You said, come and be on my true crime podcast. And I thought, true crime? I know where this is going. So I suppose we're here. How can I enlighten you if you seek enlightenment? Yeah, I do actually because I'm pretty interested in, I won't lie, Outlaw Motorcycle Clubs and you were a member for a time in that And but, you know, you are extremely passionate about motorcycling, the motorcycle lifestyle. You know, it's an obsession of yours. It's your life. Well, I'll tell you something. Outlaw Motorcyclists are the nil plus ultra of motorcycle obsession. That's about as obsessed as you can get with a motorcycle is to join an outlaw club. Certainly that was the case in the 60s, 70s, 80s and possibly part of the way through the 90s. But then clubs changed. You know, they some clubs remained true to their sort of original ethos. Others became more gangster-oriented, I suppose. Um, you know, the world changed, clubs changed, things evolve. So you would getting into motorcycles really in the 1970s, which sounds like it was kind of the heyday of that kind of stuff. I first rode a bike as I wrote about in my first book. A guy came to school, I was, I think I was in fourth form, year 10 in the today's money. He had a, a Honda XL 250, which he asked me if I could ride. I said, I lied to him. I said, yeah, of course I've ridden these before, never been on a bike in my life. And I got on it and... um couldn't ride it real well, but then, you know, after a couple of goes, I started to get the hang of it, and this was the greatest thing I'd ever done. It was just the greatest thing I'd ever experienced. It's it's like people liken it to a heroin addiction. I don't know. I've never never even tried heroin, but motorcycling, if it hooks you, it hooks you. That's it. You're done for the rest of my life. I mean, I only bought a car. Jeez, I turned 60 this year. I bought a car when I was 56. It's 
first car I ever owned. That's pretty amazing, to be <laughs> honest, living in Australia, not having a car. Didn't need a car. See, cars cars to me were like the old Conestoga wagons, you know, that the Western settlers used to settle America with. And you'd put your pots and pans and your wives and your children in these wagons and men rode horses. And, you know, the, the, the goods and shadows would follow in a wagon. That's all a car was ever to me. It was um, just transport. But, you know, I, you know my, my career sort of, I've done some work for Top Gear magazine and stuff like that. So I've driven high-end exotic sports cars and half-million-dollar BMWs. So I get it, you know, they're, they're lovely, but it's not a bike. So how did you then become drawn in? You said that, you know, you become attracted to the one percenter kind of mm-hmm. Vibe. And obviously, not everyone who rides motorcycles goes down that route. How did you become, you know, enticed into that world? There's such a great deal of appeal for that kind of lifestyle. And, and let me let me just sort of you, you mentioned the term one percenter. A lot of people use that word without actually knowing what that means. The term one percenter was coined after the um, Hollister the sort of kind of rides they had in Hollister in, in the US. It was a Labor Day weekend and um, a whole bunch of sort of bike riders converged on a town called Hollister and um, some of them had a few drinks and, and sort of started doing drag races and it was kind of pretty mild by, by you know, the standards of the 80s and 90s. The American Motorcycle Association then decried their behaviour and said they um, only represent 1% of all motorcyclists of our membership, the AMA. And the people who were doing this sort of went, well, it's a badge of a badge of courage, you know, badge, you know, badge of honour. We'll take that. And the one percenter thing was born there. So it doesn't mean um, it's not one percent of society. It's one percent of motorcycle riders. So how did I get involved? Well, you know, the whole in your face, you know, finger at the world kind of thing. You know, it just appealed to me. There was a, it was an honour based society. I believed it very. I romanticised it in my head. And I liked a society of a masculine society with with strict rules, a strict hierarchy that was based on honour, and that's what drew me to it. As I've mentioned before, my knowledge comes from Sons of Anarchy for bike culture, <laughs> and, you know, I learnt about what a prospect is. So what was your experience being a prospect when you entered this club? I, pros- I didn't prospect for very long. There are people that prospect for a long time, and never make it, and there are people that don't prospect for very long at all. It's basically a, a process whereby the club tests you to see if you're if you fit. Basically, do you fit with them? Do you fit with the way they do things? Are you someone that can be relied upon? Are you someone that can be trusted? So you you know you spend a lot of time fetching and carrying and doing stuff, kind of like a gopher. You're here, the guy, you know, go and get this, go and get that. You're meant to almost mind read what the members want. So if you're good at that, you know, you, you sort of, you're accepted pretty quickly. And so then what kind of stuff did you get up to that you were able to talk about? Was this in the 80s that you were in this club? Uh, yeah, ladies, you know, 10 years, mid-80s to mid-90s basically. Well, you know, what do we get up to? All sorts of stuff. You know, we, we, we went on rides, we got into fights, girls, drugs. It was all there. It was, you know. But it's not like we were the only people doing that. Everyone was doing drugs back then. You know, this was the 80s and the 90s. You know, they, they talk about the um, ice epidemic now. 
through the late 80s, everyone was doing methamphetamine. Speed was everywhere, you know, and that was the poor man's cocaine. We couldn't afford cocaine because we were all working class. So, you know, speed, that was, everyone was doing it. Everyone was doing it. It was everywhere. The cops were doing it. We were doing it. The surfers were doing it. The sharpies were doing it. It was everywhere, you know. So it wasn't just, oh, you know, bikies and you know, filthy drug addicts. Society's full of filthy drug addicts. It's, it's just what we do. And do you, do you like have a job while you're in this club? Yeah, I was completely employed the whole time. In fact, all of our members were employed. Okay, what were you doing? I, I was a postie at the time. I've had a bunch of jobs prior to that, but I was a postie for a while and then I um I started writing letters, stream of consciousness letters to a magazine called Ozbike, which was a, a an outlaw motorcycle magazine. And one of those letters was um, printed and I thought, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. Look, someone's published the nonsense that I wrote. And so I wrote another letter and another letter and eventually after about four or five letters, the guy who ran Osbike, a guy called Bob Skull, uh, who was one of the original Comancheros, but he left the club and started this magazine. Uh, he said, would you be interested in a, in a job? And I said, I'm doing what? And he said, oh, you know, like a trainee journo. He had no, you know. I said, yeah, sure, what do I have to do? He said, well, you have to quit your job, go on the dole, and I'll pay you 20 bucks on top of that. So I tossed in a really well-paying posty job and went went to do this stuff. <laughs> so it was great. Yeah, I relate to the um, you know the the low-pay journalism, but absolute passion. I, I I did a cadetship and everything, and it was like the greatest. You know, I was so excited. That was the greatest thing I've ever done it, it, to this day. You know, I mean, I if you want to make money, don't don't become a writer or a journal. It's just nonsense, right? But you know. Yeah, but it's it sort of fires you up, and I can tell from your writing and you do a lot of stuff. I mean, you're totally passionate about about it. In your first book, My Mother Warned Me About Blokes Like Me, I've been listening to it on audiobook and it's like your mum your mum's voice is like <laughs> so funny. What did she think of it? And also tell us a bit about how you grew up in Australia. You're Australian born to parents from Serbian parents. Ser- Serbian parents, yeah. Well, both my parents were um, war refugees in World War II. They came out here. Dad, Dad came out here, I think, in 49. Mum was here in 52. They met here. It was tough for them. There was um, there was a whole sort of Australians didn't like. They're very xenophobic Australians to this day. They're hugely xenophobic. They don't like walks, right? So it was all, they was, you know, parents were spat upon. They, they were abused constantly. It was, it was tough, you know, growing up. And I was short, fat. I had glasses. My name was Boris. I was going to be tortured, you know. It was just a given. It was all over. <clears throat> I used to beg my father to change my name, you know, or something like that. But, he, you know, that wasn't going to happen either. I, th- I think that also kind of sort of pushed me towards that. I need to be able to prove myself as a man kind of thing, you know, after, after a childhood being bullied and stuff like that. And that kind of finished in high school. I sort of felt... Well, I'm big enough and ugly enough. I don't need to take this shit anymore. So I didn't. And that's how you stand up to bullies. So um, I think that they had it tough. But I, I, I mean, I didn't speak a word of English till I was six, till I went to school, because we just sort of, you know, all the immigrants would sort of flock together and they still do it. You know, they're enclaves of, you know, Serbs or Russians or Greeks or whatever. That, that was perfectly all right for the Australians who wanted us over there. So... I was actually very grateful when the Vietnamese started to immigrate here. So the Australians could now hate someone who didn't look like them rather than us. <laughs> so. And your your dad actually was in the war, wasn't he? And and was mm-hmm. put in a concentration camp. He was. He was captured by the Germans and spent 
in two years in Bergen-Belsen or two and a half years in Bergen-Belsen. Uh, he never spoke about it. Whenever there was something to do with World War II would come on TV, he'd get up and leave the room. And my father was a hugely complex, conflicted man. The war really knocked him around. And we, ha we have no terms of reference in Australia as to what happened during World War II to the European immigrants. You know, Australia was basically untouched by World War II. Uh, you know, soldiers went overseas and fought, but it's not, not nothing compared to, you know, Nazi occupation of your, of your towns and your cities and people being lined up and shot against the wall. You know, they went through all that. Mum, I remember mum was used as slave labour by the SS. She was like, I think, 12 or 13 at the time. And she was used as slave labour. You know, she remembers plucking chickens in the snow for the SS cookpots. So they had a very tough time. But when they came out here, Dad, Dad loved Australia because there were no bombers. There was no, um, no one was hungry here. You know, there was lots of food. When he was given the choice, because Dad was liberated by the British liberated Bergen-Belsen at the end of the war, and there was still a few months left of the war to fight, so Dad enlisted in the British Army. So he still had a chance to kill Germans while there was some time left. So um, at the end of that, the, the English said to him, as gratitude for your service, we'll take you back to Yugoslavia, which was in Yugoslavia. He said, no, the, the communists will kill me. I need to be set far away. And so where would you like to go? And he said, what's the furthest place you can send me from Europe? And they said, well, there's New Zealand and Australia. And to his dying day, Dad never believed New Zealand was even a country because he'd never heard of it. So he said, Australia, cowboys and kangaroos was all he knew about that. So Australia, and they, they were, back then it was Bonagila, the um, immigrant camp in Victoria. All immigrants were funneled through Bonagila. It's very similar to a lot of the... Um, Displaced, they were called DPs, displaced persons. Then, similar to the ones they had in Italy. So that was, but it was hot and there were flies and it was, you know, Australia. There was no language lessons or none of that. You know, they were just offloaded onto the camp, and if they got work somewhere, off they went, and that was it. You know, make your own way. What kind of work did your parents end up doing? Um, well, dad, dad was a, an officer uh, in in the um, royal, in the, in the he was a Chetnik, right? So that was the royalist army that fought for King Peter, as opposed to Tito's communist partisans. So Dad was a he was a professional soldier. He came here and ended up getting a job with Sir Frank Packer uh, as a printer's assistant in a print shop. He used to print women's weeklies and stuff out at Alexandria. And Mum, who never actually managed to finish school, just she used to she was a cleaner for most of for most of her career. She was cleaning um at the airport. She worked at Callum Park. Uh, mental hospital, cleaning that, you know, that was basically what, what she did. And then she ended up being um, a barmaid at the Russian club when I was about 13, 14, so just, you know. And being like you were born in Australia and I'm really interested in finding out a bit more, I guess, about, you know, even though you said your dad didn't really ever talk about what happened, but I've read a bit about stuff about intergenerational trauma and I've done interviews in the past in my career as a journalist with like children of Vietnam veterans and saying, you know, it, it, it can kind of feel trickle down some of the, these things. Do you believe in that or do, how did things happen for you as a kid, you know, with them? Well, I'll tell you honestly, I, I never experienced that. I knew, you know, we were Serbs. Serbs are, are not like other white people. We were We've always thought we were a bit different. I, I suppose it comes down to this. I never quite fit 
in Australia. You know, I, you know, my name was different. I spoke, you know, three languages or four languages. These people were monolingual. I didn't get that. You know, how can you only speak one language? What's wrong with you, you know? Parents didn't fit. And it wasn't until I went back when I was 24, I went back to, um, that was still Yugoslavia and Tito had just been dead for two years. And I turned up in Yugoslavia and then everything just fell into place for me. I thought, this is it. This is what's, this is where I fit. These are the kind of people I get. They live differently. They, 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 they sing, they dance, they cry, they laugh, they live passionately. They, because, you know, the Serbs go to war every generation for, you know, as far back as you can remember. You know, don't get me wrong, I, I love Australia. It's, it's the greatest place in the world. But there is a cultural vacuum here that is just not never going to be filled. And that over there, that the Serbs fill that cultural vacuum for me. But that is a generational trauma. I don't know. It doesn't apply to me, I don't think. And do you think that feeling like you kind of didn't quite fit drew you to the motorcycle world. What is it about that? Very much so. Um, look, <laughs> motorcyclists, I mean, they're dangerous. That's why we do it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't ride a bike if it was safe, okay? To then dial that up to, you know, to level 10 in an outdoor club, that just makes everything even better. I mean, you know, we rode without helmets for years, didn't care, you know. <laughs> it, it, was, it was very much that devil may care, I'm not, I don't know, I can swear on your show or whatever, but it was, you know, fuck all you all basically, right? I'm doing what I want to do. Uh, and that's what it was. That that was that was its huge appeal. And, I mean, you you know, in your books you, you openly talk about, yeah, riding with no helmets. I mean, it just seems everyone who was riding motorcycles was pissed, like drugged up. I mean, you've, you know, you've lost your licence a number of times. Sure, yep. It wasn't being, well, I've done two DUIs, you know, over you know three and a half million kilometres. Um, so yeah, but we, you know, look, you can't ride a motorcycle off your face very well. Right? And the whole point of being a motorcycle is, you, you know, behooves you to improve your skill set. Otherwise, you don't last very long. I've still got all my fingers and toes. I walk without a limp, but I've had, you know. A bad accident. We, you know, it, that's the price you pay to do what you want to do. And if you're not prepared to do, you're not prepared to pay that price. Don't do it. Just keep driving cars. I'm really interested to know as well about how outlaw motorcycle clubs have kind of evolved a bit. I know you're not involved in that world anymore, so you may not be able to speak to it. But we've spoken to a couple of guests over the time of doing this podcast who've just mentioned things like. You know, in in outlaw motorcycle clubs now, you've actually got people in it who don't actually ride bikes, and I just remember thinking that's weird. Why would you be in a motorcycle outlaw motorcycle club if you don't ride a bike? Like to me, that just sounds stupid. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. It, it, it does sound stupid. I think you're talking about the Nike bikies. This was something that happened. Oh, I think it was in the mid '90s. There was a, a, a paradigm shift by a club that we're not going to go into it now, so it doesn't matter, but there was a club that we all, who everyone who's in the lifestyle knows what happened. And they started recruiting, um, for reasons only they can explain, actual criminals. And the criminals got more criminals in and became very much a criminal organisation, but only a small part of that club was that criminal organisation, you know what I mean? I mean, they, the cops love to talk about organised crime and all that bullshit. 
that's nonsense. You know, we couldn't organise what pizza we wanted to have on Friday night at a club meeting, you know. It's like learn trying to import a tonne of cocaine from Bolivia. I mean, where the fuck would I even sell that? You know, who would I sell it to? I, don't, I wouldn't know. None of us knew. You know, did we sell drugs? Yeah, I'd sell, you know, a little bag of dope to someone for 30 bucks or something like that. But, you know, are we moving tonnes and tonnes of, 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 of coke or heroin? No, we weren't. That's just paint nonsense and it remains that to this day. Are there criminal elements in the clubs? Of course there are. Are there criminal elements in the police force? Of course there are. Are there criminal elements in the Catholic clergy? Oh, hell yes, right? You know, but, you know, the thing is the outlaw clubs is we call it low-hanging fruit, right? It's easy to victimise because we look nasty and that's on purpose, you know, it's you dress, you dress to intimidate, to be left the fuck alone. That's what you want. And essentially, outlaw clubs are the most inward-looking organisations in the world. They're not here to overturn the social fabric of society. We don't care about society. We care about ourselves and other outlaw clubs. That's the whole point of it, to live outside of society. I mean, you can live outside. You still have to, we're all part of society. But, you know, uh, a society without outlaws is not much of a society, is it? It's rather bland and boring, wouldn't you think? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. When you worked for ACP, you edited some of the, you know, the racier titles. And look, I, I, when I got my cadetship as a journalist, I got a cadetship at Pacific Magazines and it was kind of on the tail end of the Austra- Australasian Post, the Aussie Post. So, you know... I didn't work there, but I worked with people who worked there. Well, I was editor of the picture for two years. I actually cut my teeth on the picture subsbension. That was back in the days, and the picture was selling 270,000 copies a week. So we were the biggest selling men's magazine, one of the biggest selling magazines in Australia. And yeah, it was all tits and bums, and we celebrated nudity and we celebrated the female form in all its shapes and sizes. But it was very, very cleverly written. We had some gun writers on there, Paul Tui, 
Jack Marks, these are walk the award-winning journos to this day. They're, they're brilliant. They were just geniuses. You know, I'd spent 10 years editing Ausbike magazine. I, I thought I, I knew how to write. I didn't know shit until I sat down at that subs bench and went, wow, these guys are gods. These guys are really good. How long were you there for? I worked for almost 20 years at ACB. Wow. And, and now you're doing a lot of your own stuff. But before we get on to your creative works, I want to talk about rolling on for this for – you know, you're in the bike, the bike club, it's anti-authoritarian, you, you know, you, it's fair to say you don't like cops and we'll get into that after. Sure. Um, but I learned about from, you know, your stuff about these riots at, at Mount Panorama in the 1980s. Now I don't know that much about Bathurst except that it's like the Holy Grail for people who are into their motorsport. It was back then. That's no longer the case, but it was back then. And it's quite family friendly these days is my understanding, but certainly not in the 80s? Well, they're, they're not there anymore. Bathurst, Mount Panorama, the, the mountain, used to host the Australian MotoGP back in the day. I think two or three weeks after getting my licence, I headed up there and I thought when I rode up to that mountain, I saw you know 10,000 motorcyclists just drinking, partying, having a great time, all friendly, all very welcoming. I thought, yep, this is it, I've come home. Of course, you always kill the thing you love, <laughs> and we killed Bathurst. But I think that last, that final ride, and, yeah, that was pretty much a ride. The rest of them were not. They used to um, cycle between, well, let's all go down to the police compound because the police acted like utter assholes. You know, they would book us. They'd kick all their shit all over the road. They'd torment us on the way there. They were really, really almost like they wanted to, to incite something to happen. So... Most Friday nights, is Good Friday, we'd go to the, what they call the police compound, which would get more compound every year. The fences got higher, the lights were brighter, and the police would evolve as well. They went from being the normal you know, blue shirt, pants, and a nightstick to the precursors or the, the predecessors of the TRG. The TRG was born on the mountain to fight, to bash bikies. The trouble is there were very few bikies. The one percenters were not there. No one percenters went to Bathurst. If they went, they went to the pubs in town, but none of them were on the mountain. And a lot of these people were just country boys as well, would come up just to have a go at the cops. But that final year, I think it was 82 or 83, that, that last big ride, the one difference that was there that year that wasn't there the years before that was the, the arrival of methamphetamine. Suddenly that was prevalent on the mountain. That changed the whole dynamic. I mean... <laughs> We would usually get bored and leave by 10, 11 o'clock. You know, the cops wouldn't engage or they'd engage for a while, then everyone gets tired, goes back to bed. But we rioted that night till fighting was still dawn. It, everyone went all night and it was it was vicious, it was savage. And I thought, that's the end of this, you know, especially when, I mean, I was there when they torched the I think Channel 7 camera car and that was a setup. It was an absolute setup. Now, they drove their car there, they got out, they took their camera gear out, we're looking at them. They go, you guys should set it on fire. I went, yeah, okay. So we did. We burnt it, right? They, but they filmed it. They said, hang on, we'll just set up. So it was a, it was a stage, stage managed event to a certain degree. That part was anyway. Yeah, my understanding is it kind of all kicked off when a, a V-dub, a Beetle kind of drove and it sounded like the drivers might have been pissed or something. No, no, what happened? I, I was there. So there was these chicks and they had these bull rings, which is a bunch of people in a circle and people get their bikes and do donuts and things. 
And this V-dub drove into this ball ring. There were two girls in it. They started doing donuts. And then we thought that's pretty boring. We don't like cars anyway. So we're all booing them and throwing beer cans at them. Anyway, the girls got out, left the V-dub there. So we rolled the V-dub over. We decided to roll the, it's like this crowd mentality, decided to roll the V-dub to the compound. So we kind of managed to sort of end end over end into the compound. But what kicked that ride off wasn't that. It was the fact that one of the police officers coat-hanged a girl off the back of a bike. What does that mean, Boris, coat-hanged? Well, coat-hanged, she was sitting on the back of a motorcycle riding past the compound. She lifted her shirt up to show her boobs to everyone and one of the cops just knocked her off the bike. So that upset lots of people in the crowd. So, you know, cans and bottles were thrown, Molotov cocktails came later, kiosks were demolished, bricks were thrown, and it just kind of escalated from there. Were you in on the action? I was throwing stuff at the cops as well. (laughs) Why wouldn't I be? I I hated them then, I hate them now. Yeah, it's um, definitely something that comes through your books, Boris. You don't like authority and you definitely not really into cops. We'll put it that way. Look, I'll tell you what I'm, I'll tell you what I'm not into. I'm not into a corrupt, manifestly demonstrably corrupt police force that is unaccountable. I want a professional, independently accountable police force. That is what we deserve. That is what we demand. Not all cops are bad. Not all Catholic priests are pedophiles. But, you know, and not all bikies are drug-dealing scumbags. You worked in the media industry for a really long time, but when did you start to write and you've got a blog and you do a podcast and you've got your own kind of brand of, you know, doing bike reviews and talking about motorcycle-related stuff? Oh, look, I, I think that kind of happened almost by a natural progression of what you had to be if you were going to you know, remain relevant, you have to keep reinventing yourself in the media landscape, which was constantly changing. In the in the PMAGs, as we called them, the tits and bums mag that ACP used to do, the internet killed us, right? The internet killed us pretty much. And then there was this whole new, the new morality came along where, I don't know if you remember, but back in the um, 60s and early 70s, there used to be newspapers, afternoon newspapers, The Sun, and there was a, a topless girl on page three Right. And you know, the world didn't collapse, you know. We, but then somehow, through the night, all the way through the nineties, we got we became more and more Victorian in our in our view about nudity and sexualizing of women and stuff like that. And I get that, you know. I mean, I'm a huge feminist. My wife is a huge feminist. I think that 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 women have had a really rough trot, you know, with the glass ceilings and all that shit. But I worked in a company where women were the power. ACP, the women were in charge of everything. I don't know. They, they, even some of the, the ladies from you know, Women's Week thought that we did a great job and, and, and laughed at our stories and laughed at our models and the experiences that we had with them. So I don't know. It's weird. It's like a pendulum thing. I think it'll swing back eventually. So Yeah, I lived in London for quite a number of years and I think up to quite late into the 90s, they still had the page three. Girl, you know, the sun, I, I was a teacher for a while and the boys would come in with the the sun under there, um, mostly for the football results, to be honest. They were reading it and then there happened to be the, the page three girl. So your first book, which is 
It's pretty funny and it's actually really interesting. My mother warned me about blo- <laughs> Thank my you. mother warned me about blokes like me. Like I'm listening to it chuckling along and it's obviously very popular because you've written two more books, but tell us about your books because I know I know people have read them and really love them and hence the recommendation to get you on as a, you know, a different kind of interview on the podcast. Well, I don't know, I suppose like I said, everyone's got at least one book in them. I'm I'm what I call it a shit magnet. Shit naturally I attract terrible things happen to me. I, I probably purposely put myself in harm's way or shit's way, but it happens and I, somehow I've survived it all. So I, I happen to have some small talent being able to, to tell it's an engaging tale. And I think that's thanks to the, the lessons I learned at the picture magazine, how to write an engaging story. You know, you got three hundred words, go. And I think that so many people take this whole bikey thing far too seriously. It's 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 very funny. Some of the shit that happens is absolutely hilarious. It, it might can be it might be confronting to people who are from that lifestyle, but people who are in clubs read they go, yeah, that that's pretty much what what it is. You know how it happens. And we spent a lot of time laughing. Most outlaw clubs spend most of their time just laughing at each other and at the shit that happens. You know because you take us all far more seriously than we take ourselves. And when you when did you write your first book? When, how long since that came out? Uh, about six years ago, I think. Yeah, it'd be six years ago. And you've rolled on with a couple more. There's At the Altar of the Road Gods and The Wisdom of the Road Gods. So there's a bit of a, a brand thing happening there. I can see your genius with that. So how are you sustaining yourself as a creator? Because let's face it, it's really hard. Like what kind of stuff do you do? You've got, you do a podcast, you do reviews. Like how do you keep going with your, it's not niche, but it is your sort of a niche media. How do I feed myself? I'm a freelance writer. I'm a gun for hire. But I I happen to be able to do other things like the podcast, which has become far more popular than we ever imagined it would. Just recently started a website which has paywalls in it. I never thought that would work, but it does. I offer people, you know, I mean, 80% of the stuff on the website is free, but there's 20% of the stuff that there's you know, four tiers of payment. If they want to read you know, parts of my fourth book, you know, I go through the creative process with the readers. They seem to enjoy that. It's called Years of Writing Dangerously, which is, I suppose, is what I've always done, and that seems to work. Yeah, I know what you mean when you said, you know, you do a podcast and it ended up being more popular than you thought. When Michelle and I started this podcast five years ago, we were kind of just doing it for ourselves. We were just chatting with people and didn't even know what the stats were and suddenly it's kind of like gone off and it's, it's, it's yeah. a, I love podcasting. It's amazing. Tell us about your podcast. Ah, uh, okay. We do, we do a podcast called, called uh, Moto PG. It's a takeoff of Moto GP with the tagline is we see dead people. Basically, we, um, we, we decided that there was three of us used to sit around a table and just talk about the racing, which is the greatest racing in the world. It's the greatest, most exciting sport I've ever, ever watched. This is riding motorcycles at levels that human beings can't even appreciate. So we decided to just take the piss out of it, basically, and that's what we do. We Because yeah, they're all prima donnas and we all love them, but we hate them. It's like uh, a soap opera for, for blokes, pretty much. But we have a you know a sizable part of our audience is female as well, which is quite interesting, and we're pretty irreverent. You know, we we swear, we laugh, we we've been accused of misogynism and racism and and all sorts of stuff. You know, which is funny because I'm Serbian, one of the other guys is Italian, and he puts on a big Italian accent, which is hilarious. And we just basically dissect 
the weekend's racing for the readers, which they've already seen. I believe we are 1,064th in America of all the podcasts, which is a pool of over a million podcasts. So last week we were number six of um, MotoGP podcasts in the world. So that's behind the five official ones and then there's us, which is like really weird. We don't get it. Wow. I'm going to start listening, even though I literally know nothing about Moto. That's all right. You don't have to know anything about it either. We don't know dick about it as well. We just make it up. Maybe I can start my own one. (laughs) Now, what I also loved reading about is you're you're like – total family man you were absolutely besotted and devoted to your wife and you say she has got the patience of a saint and she does to be honest boris i think being married to you would be she probably <laughs> needed i'm getting the vibe she she is the grace and beauty in my life without her i'd be living in a cardboard box under a freeway well, i just straight up i love i i really got that sense in your writing just about the love you have for her and your your son now you know seeing the kind of life you've led it's obviously been exciting, but being a dad, how did you marry up how you live your life but also being a parent? Well, she met me when I was in the Outlaw Club. Do tell. Well, she she worked in a bank and it was a, actually it was the first time I'd ever seen legs on a girl in ages because all she used to wear jeans. This one turned up in heels and a skirt and I went, yeah, wow, that's what they look like. <laughs> so, no, no, she was – we was instant attraction, but anyway, she um she put up with a lot back in those days because you know let's face it, it's not exactly a lifestyle conducive or to to girls. Girls play very much a secondary role to what's going on in the club. I could never tell her where I was going because often I didn't know. I could never tell her how how long I'd be gone for because that was entirely contingent upon the money. When the money ran out, we'd come home, and it was also a good way of. You know, if if the police became involved, she honestly didn't know anything, so she couldn't tell them anything. I got to a stage in my life, in my mid-30s, where I thought, I want to get married and have kids. So I left the club, got married. That's it. But you you kind of end up being, I was once termed as, as a, you know, kind of alcoholics. You're an alcoholic forever. Well, I'm an outlaw in recovery. I'm an outlaw forever, but I just choose not to do that anymore. But I miss it. Absolutely. I'd be lying to you if I said I didn't miss it. I still got friends who were in clubs. I still see them. I still love going for rides with outlaw clubs. I'd love going, you know, to their clubhouses. I have a great time. They're some of the best people I've ever met. And is your son into bikes? Nope, not at all. <laughs> not at all. He's doing a, a sound engineering degree at a um, university. He never evinced any interest in riding. I never pushed him. And then when he turned 16, he said, oh, I think I might want to ride a bike. My wife came to me and said, you want to do something about this because I'm not having him ride a bike. I said, I can fix this. So um, I said to him, mate, you sure you want to ride a bike? He said, yeah, I reckon it'd be a cool thing to do. I said, no, no, you, your mindset's wrong. Unless you burn, you really burn with the desire to do this, you're going to be shit at it. So I took him out to a friend's property, put him on a dirt bike, and waited for the inevitable to happen, and it did. He crashed into a tree and hurt his leg and stuff, and since that day, he's never wanted to ride again. See, he gets it. He's not stupid. He gets that unless he really wants to do this, he's going to be bad at it, and terrible things will happen. Yeah, and you do write about a lot of terrible things that happen to people you knew while riding, like serious shit. People die. People lose their legs. I mean... It's a blood blood sport. You pay a huge... If you get it wrong, you get it really wrong. 
And and yeah, well, I've, sure, I've lost friends. I've had you know guys die in my arms in the middle of the road. You know, I came very close myself not that long ago. But would I have it any other way? No. Like I said, I wouldn't do it if it was safe. What was your recent experience with uh, you know nearly coming a cropper? A mum turned her um, Ford Explorer across my path, and I sent a punch to the car. I um, had compound fractures to my left arm, both the bones came out, and I broke my neck. Um, the hangman's vertebrae, C3, I think it is. Yeah, I was very, very lucky. I could have died. It was a stable fracture. Yeah, and I mean, I'm paying for that to this day. Um, what I'm 60 now, but maybe got 10 years of riding left in me. I reckon I'll you know, kick on till then, but after that, it's, you know, what's the point? When we were preparing for this interview, I was asking you about what you'd, you know, quite like to talk about. And you said, obviously, there's things you can't talk about because there's no statute of limitations. So there's, you know, some interesting things that you've uh, you've done. Look, there's, 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 there's tales that you never tell out of school. I would not be alive today. I would not be who I am if I was to tell those tales. Those tales will die with me. Oh, we can all sit around and tell stories amongst ourselves late at night, and we do, and we reminisce about the good, you know, the glory days kind of thing. But you know, there's, there's, there's stuff that I've done that I'm not proud of, and I don't think I'm unique there. There's, you know, people have have done things in their past that they probably maybe I shouldn't have done that quite that way, but you know, it was it was the vibe at the time. But yeah, you know, statute limitations on certain things don't run out, so you know, it is what it is. Well, Boris, it's been really interesting chatting to you. At first I was like, I don't know about this. I was reading the books and then I'm loving the books and I just thought, yeah, it's something completely different. It's, um, I don't know, it's just a fresh take, you know. You're obviously a guy who's just really doesn't walk to the beat that everyone else does and I think I understand more about that from reading about you and talking about you. So thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks to our guest, Boris Mihailovic. Boris is the author of three books, My Mother Warned Me About Blokes Like Me, At the Altar of the Road Gods, and The Wisdom of the Road Gods. You can find out more about Boris at his website, borismihailovic.com, and listen to his podcast, Moto PG. The details are in the show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.